I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. On today's episode, I had a conversation with Rebecca Bastian about the current state of mobile and developing for mobile web versus native apps. Rebecca is VP at Zillow and has been successfully driving the execution of products. She got an early start on mobile and also saw the potential for building effective experiences in this platform. We also talked about measuring engagement in mobile, her hobbies, volunteering opportunities, and about her blog post titled, Why I'm Not a Woman in Tech. I hope you like this episode. Rebecca, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. So as a recent grad, you started Microsoft. And after two years, you decided to leave and start as one of the first employees at Zillow. What were some of the motivations that you had at that time to head to a company that's just getting started? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft was a really great learning experience for um, kind of getting into the computer science world. I had actually had a mechanical engineering degrees before that. So um, it was a really good transition into this. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a great company to work for. I um, was working on a pretty legacy product at Microsoft and mm -hmm. making kind of smaller incremental changes and um, felt like I would really like to try my hand at a startup and try beginning something from scratch. And so I was looking at Zillow and was really excited about the founders and the space that they were going into, the real estate space, which um, hadn't had a lot of disruption for really ever. And so I decided to give that a try. Mm -hmm. This was, was back in 2006, right? 2005 is when I started here. Yeah. Oh, okay. And we launched our first product in February of 2006. Oh, okay. And right when you joined, how were your responsibilities different than from being in a big corporation? Um, you know, in an early stage startup, everyone mm -hmm. wears a lot of hats and it's kind of just trying to, to get all the things done. So, um, mm -hmm. it was, I think, a little bit less of a defined small area of feature ownership and really like, let's all work to get this product launched and to take some big swings on it. So that was really mm -hmm. fun for me. I mean, it was still the, the program management role, which, as you know, is around kind of defining and executing on features, working closely with business owners and developers and all the people that, that get those features um, kind of thought through from strategy all the way to, to launching and analysis post-launch. So it was still mm -hmm. that role, but um, it was a really fun opportunity to just dive in and own as much as I could handle. Mm -hmm. And was the initial product a web application or a desktop client? What was the first Zillow product? Yeah, the first product was was web. Um, as mm -hmm. you know, most most technologies were at that time. There wasn't really a lot of mobile at the time, so it was it was it was a web client. Mm -hmm. And around 2007, the first iPhone was just being launched. Did Zillow immediately? consider making a mobile app or how, how did that transition happen? Yeah, we were really excited when that came out. You know, um, I think we realized even before that, that real estate is a pretty inherently mobile scenario. 
So people are out looking at homes and wanting to find out information about them. And even before there existed a platform for building out these great mobile scenarios, we had tried kind of a, um, a text service, even running off of one of our developers' machines where someone could text in and ask for his estimate on a given address. So that was our first oh, habit. Wow. Was that an SMS? SMS, yeah. Oh, my, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the slickest thing, but we really we realized that people wanted that information while they were out in the field, and we wanted to provide that. So, yes. um, we were really excited when the iPhone came out, and mm-hmm. several of us, um, kind of more the early adopters who just loved the the next cool gadget, got that first version of the iPhone, and we immediately started thinking about how can we leverage this to really enhance the the mobile real estate browsing and shopping experience on mobile. Okay. So you first started working on the mobile apps like a few months after the iPhone was released or a year, like pretty early. Pretty early, game. yeah. It actually took us a while with our first app that we were working on. And, you know, we just kind of got a group of myself and a few developers um, who were really passionate about it, got together and started working on it. And at that time, there wasn't a map API. So we had to build our own custom map for it. And getting a map on that first version of the iPhone to be performance and, you know, be able to pan and zoom and um, load all the results really quickly was really challenging. And that's actually what took us the longest with that first app. Mm-hmm. What were the cap- capabilities of that first app? Do you remember? Yeah. In addition to the map? I do. Yeah, it's my baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, what was it? It was really focusing on the core real estate browsing and shopping experience. So mm-hmm. what we call kind of the golden path where you enter either an address or a region that you're searching in, so a neighborhood or a city or a zip code, and then you see the map with all the homes there with um, the the price or this estimate on every rooftop, which just going back a step, um, when Zillow first launched, that was kind of what we were known for is this estimate on every rooftop. So being able to find information and valuations on almost every home in the country. And then on top of that, we built this real estate marketplace where we had for sale listings and you could actually find homes to buy. And that's kind of our core scenario or it was at the time. And so that's what we built the app around is looking at homes, looking at all the homes, finding deep information on them and then being able to reach out to an agent if it's for sale and, and get more information about it. Mm-hmm. So the map was very visual, right? You mentioned you put the price on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, you know, when you're when you're out looking at houses, you don't necessarily want to see a list of the houses around you because that's not in context. So we really felt like it was important to nail that map scenario so you could actually get that view of where you are and what you're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. Do you see more? engagement in mobile than in web or is it still almost the same well it's definitely tipped now i mean flash forward so that was i guess 2008 i think and forward now and we see about two-thirds of our usage coming from mobile now and on weekends it's as high as like three quarters of our usage wow yeah so i mean it's a it's definitely a mobile world now and we were so glad that we jumped on it as soon as we could because it's such a compelling scenario. But now with all the different platforms that have come out and mobile usage as high as it is, you know, that's that's our core usage. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk more about the mobile technologies. Right now with the changes, we're seeing two ideas basically, which is the native app and also the mobile web, which for example, to tools like Apache Cordova make it easier to make apps with web technologies. How do you decide? Do you have a native and web technologies or? Um, so we have, I guess, a little bit more background. So we have apps across all the major platforms now, including um, iOS and Android and Apple TV and the watches and everything. So we have a really... Um, the native apps. Native apps. And we have okay. um, our real estate app, which is the initial one we launched with. But now we also have apps for Zillow rentals. So, you know, since those early days, we've launched an entire rental marketplace now too. And we have apps for that. We have apps for Zillow mortgages. So that lets people anonymously shop for mortgages. And then we also have um, an app that's targeted at the agents, the professionals that are using our products and helping them really help with consumers. So we have a really large matrix of apps across um, across platforms and across verticals. And they all are mostly native, right? So we do employ some web technologies within them sometimes, especially if there's a new feature that we're just testing that hasn't been totally solidified yet, you know, before we invest in making that native code. Um, mm -hmm. But um, we have that. And then we also have mobile web. And that's been some, that's been really interesting because when we first started building our apps, mobile web was, you know, virtually impossible to create a good user experience on. You know, we basically had a list view and it wasn't very performant and yeah. it was tricky. And since then, as you know, the um, mobile web technologies have really advanced too, to the point where you can actually create a pretty decent user experience on mobile web as well almost at par with the apps, I would say. And so with that has brought a really interesting trade-off and conversation. And um, I was a big part of trying to think through mobile web versus apps for our company about a year, year and a half ago, because we see that we're able to create that really good mobile web experience now. Um, but how do we want to trade off? Do we want to be pushing users into kind of deeper in the funnel into our apps? Or do we want to give them a really great mobile web experience the second they get there? And so that took kind of a lot of thinking through user scenarios and who are the users that want to be um, doing kind of more a quick, efficient um, search or um, find information on mobile web versus who are those like more deeply engaged users who are going to benefit from the push notifications and the, you know, kind of remembering their different states in the app. Also, like you mentioned, performance might be better. For example, what caught my attention was in 2012, Facebook ditched their mobile application in favor of native apps because they had big performance. Yeah, performance is is definitely trickier to nail um, with web than with native. It's true. Um, you know, we've put a lot of focus into that, and you can get it close, but it's it's a constant battle to to keep it from slowing down. Mm -hmm. So right now, you would say you have a balance between native and mobile, like the mobile web is for different cases and native apps have more capabilities, something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people that end up on mobile web are coming from search, right? So they're searching for an address or for, you know, Seattle homes for sale or homes for rent or something, and they end up on Zillow. And, um, you know, it's kind of understanding 
what information they're trying to get right away and making sure they get that information, making sure they have a really good experience there, but also making sure that they're aware of the fact that we have these really rich app offerings and for people that want to engage more regularly and deeper to drive them into that. Mm -hmm. How do you measure that engagement in those experiences? Well, we look at um, how many you know, engagement, we can look at how many homes a person's viewing, how many times they're contacting an agent or a landlord or property manager. We can look at um, how much time they're spending and how frequently they come back. You know, a lot of the kind of standard engagement metrics. Mm -hmm. And how do you start off designing engaging mobile experiences? Do you bring in users and talk with them or, or is it more of like A-B testing, trial and error? Yeah, all of that. We, we have a oh, very okay. test driven culture here. So okay. we do a lot of usability. We do focus groups. So larger focus groups. We do usability testing both in person and through, you know, third party services that make it really easy to engage with users quickly. Um, we do a ton of AB testing. Um, you know, we, we try to, measure everything and make data-driven decisions, but also with that kind of um, user empathy and intuition overlaid on it. Mm -hmm. Did you have uh, data-driven decisions back in 2005? Um, well, 2005, when we hadn't launched yet, I think the, the data we're looking at is what, you know, I guess that was more qualitative, understanding what the real estate landscape looks like, you know, we're a tech company. And in 2005, we we had all tech employees, pretty much, right? We had an agent on our board, but really, we're a bunch of tech people trying to understand real estate, instead of real estate people trying to understand tech, which, um, you know, has been really great in terms of the, um, the way that we're kind of obsessed with consumers and obsessed with technology and really trying to keep taking big swings and, and do the right thing there. Um, and we definitely had a learning curve around real estate, which was really interesting. We had people coming in and teaching us the difference between a, you know, a real estate agent and a realtor or a broker and an agent and stuff. And so, you know, I guess the early data we're getting is, you know, how does this whole real estate thing work? Why are we having such frustrating experiences trying to get the data that we want about the homes that we're looking at? And how can we solve some of those problems? Mm -hmm. So it was a lot about understanding the language of the product itself. Yeah, the real estate. Yeah, and understanding yeah how how the the workflow what the workflow is for real estate transactions and and real estate research. Mm -hmm. And then incorporating data driven once you have several users and you're trying to add new features or change things basically. Yeah, you know I think. Um, when you're taking a really big swing when it hasn't been done before, there's only so much data you can get ahead of time about that. And we've continually taken big swings in this area. You know, when we added, um, when we added the kind of marketplaces on top of our core product, well, I guess the Zestimate inherently is a big swing because there's so much data and it hadn't been transparent before that, right? So we're really kind of turning on the lights around all this data and helping people 
find a good way to digest it and understand it. So like pr by providing this estimate, which is evaluation, or just in providing really easy ways to read and understand all the data we have. So that was our first big swing. And then adding listings on top of that and adding rentals and create empowering real estate professionals to connect with those consumers. And all these really big swings, you know, there's so much data you can get, but a lot of it is just kind of having having a strategic mind and a quest for doing the next big thing. And then I think when you're iterating on existing products, whether they be large or small iterations, um, that's when data can really come into play to help make some decisions. Yes, definitely. And as a VP at Silo, you're one of the driving forces of products like we've been talking about. What are some of the things that you do to drive an effective execution of products and on a timely manner? Like what types of activities are involved in this? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have kind of the um, traditional product life cycle where we're generally scrum based and um, there's all the, you know, the things that we all know about the product life cycle. I think the way that I, I don't know, the thing I attribute to getting great products out quickly is, um, having amazing teams that I work with and really giving them the autonomy to make decisions and drive things forward so that I'm not a bottleneck on it. So I have um, really, we hire really great people and we like to hire people that are a combination of really technically strong, but also creative and problem solvers. And by getting those great people in here and then giving that autonomy, you can really get so many things moving in parallel and quickly in a really high quality bar Um, without having to, so I'm there to consult and to help with the strategy and um, to to lend my ideas when needed, but I'm not a bottleneck on the products getting done. Mm -hmm. So it's more about listening to the other teams and then making sure they're all going in the same direction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a lot of different product teams now, so um, there, there, there's a lot of directions that we're going in at once. We have, you know, goals as a company that we're all working towards, both kind of short to medium term and longer term goals that we all think about and strive towards. And then we have product planning where um, leadership gets together with the different product teams on kind of a quarterly basis to understand what's on their roadmap, talk about how that aligns with other teams' roadmaps, um, make sure that everything's prioritized the right way and kind of have, have healthy discussions around those priorities. And then the teams are really free to move forward quickly and make the right decisions and get things done. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I can definitely relate to that because it's <laughs> the, the process we go through. We have Scrum and we meet with program managers and talk about features. Yes. Yeah. So... Yeah. So let, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, recently, you published uh, the blog post titled, Why I'm Not a Woman in Tech. So for those that haven't read the post, I encourage you to read it. It got published at the Huffington Post, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's what, what, prompted you, what prompted you to write this blog post? Um, well, it was actually funny. The I guess the catalyst, although it's what I've been thinking about for a while, but the catalyst was being asked to give a talk about women in tech, and mm -hmm. by a very nice guy who ended up reading the blog post and checking <laughs> sure I wasn't offended. But yeah, um, you know, I it's the idea of women in tech in itself being a topic, mm -hmm. and the kind of almost freak show association that goes along with that. Um, 
So, you know, I love to talk to women in tech about their careers and their, you know, what they're working on and challenges they're facing. And, you know, I love both in a, you know, larger talk or a panel or even just in individual mentorship. I think that's wonderful because I want to support, I mean, clearly there is a gap in, um, men versus women in tech, there's only about 25% of women on average in the tech industry in, in computing jobs. So, and that's not a Zillow stat, but that's just, I think, a national stat that I read. Um, and so, you know, anything I can do to help increase that number is great. And, you know, I, I, I love working with other women. It's, it's fun to have friends at work. So um, I'm all for that. And I'm all for talking about my own you know, accomplishments or learnings or things that I'm an expert on, because I think that sets a standard for um, productive women in technology. But as a topic in itself, um, is it making us stand out more as being an anomaly where really we're just all people in tech and we're all working together? And um, yeah, so, you know, in the conversations that have stemmed from that, which have been great, it makes me realize that I'm definitely coming from kind of a place of privilege in that my career hasn't seen a lot of obstacles for being a woman. And from that sense, um, I think I'm able to stand here and say, let's stop talking about it. Let's just do our jobs because I've had a really good experience. You know, I was promoted to management when I was about seven months pregnant. I, I was promoted to a VP shortly after my second maternity leave. I've definitely like being a woman or a mother has never held me back in my career here. And I work with people that are just respectful and treat me equitably, I think. And so from that position, it's easy for me to say that. And I know there are women out there who haven't had that same experience, who have actually felt marginalized or, um, or worse for being a woman in their fields. And those are conversations that, you know, we shouldn't keep quiet either. I think it's important to bring those to light and talk about that. So I don't want to discourage those conversations either. And it might just be the fact that I don't have horror stories myself, right? Yes, but I could definitely relate when I saw that blog post, because even though this is called the Women in Tech Show, part of why I wanted to do it was to get women talking about what they're working on instead of just the whole women in tech issue. So I can definitely relate with, some of those portions in the blog that blog post that you wrote. Yeah, definitely. Like, why do we need to, I don't know. It it sets a much better standard, I think, to just talk about your accomplishments, right? Because I know so many women who have, you know, done amazing things in the tech world and so many men too. I mean, we're all doing some pretty awesome stuff here. So (laughs) let's talk about that. Right. Yeah. And actually recently I went to the Anita Borg launch party in Seattle and they, yeah. And they mentioned that, the theme for Grace Hopper was going to be men allies, which I thought was great. Yeah. So apparently there can be more men attendees in this conferences. That's great. Um, right. How do you think that men can be more inclusive and aware of these issues? Do you think it'll just happen because slowly we're getting more women in the field and they'll just be used to listening to their ideas? And I mean, you know, in what... I guess one answer to that is that I think it's really important for everybody to understand their biases, both conscious and unconscious biases. Um, and that can relate to gender as well as, you know, all the, all the other things that people have biases about, um, ethnicity and communication style and, um, and backgrounds and everything. And, um, so really understanding your biases and then trying to get past them, I think is important for everybody to do. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so maybe have like a training mandatory for all employees. We do unclassified training here, which I think is really helpful. I've heard a lot of people say good things about it. And, yes. You know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is that maybe it's less about women versus men, and it might be more about communication style. And I think that um, what we can do, so there's going to be people that have a harder time kind of getting their voices heard, especially in the, the louder conversations or really being able to, to speak up and be part of the conversation. And then there's going to be people like me who are loud and obnoxious <laughs> and are always being heard. <laughs> and okay. I think it's more about can, can the people who think or kind of talk without thinking as much, you know, there's people that kind of talk before thinking like me and there's people that really think through their thoughts and then they say them and can we try the louder ones of us can we try to make room for everybody in the conversations and so kind of taking time for the people that need to process a little bit more giving opportunities for people to contribute to conversations and decision making and trying to kind of keep an ear out for the quieter person who's trying to get a word in in these big conversations um which i know a lot of um, tech companies have that kind of dynamic where there's there's these big discussions and there's decisions being made. And can we try to find a way to get everyone's voices heard there, whether it's men or women? But I know that, you know, sometimes there is that kind of um, there are women who can tend to be quieter and have a harder time being part of that. So I think that that's something that everyone can think about is how do we get all the voices heard? Because we know that the more diverse voices that we have at the table, the better decisions are being made there. Right. Um, so I think that's the biggest way that we can kind of think about trying to. Um, and then I think if we have cultures that let all voices be heard, then that's going to want, that's going to make more people, more other people that are feeling less heard want to be part of those conversations and be part of those companies. Mm-hmm. And even encouraging them to speak, because, for example, in one of the teams that I worked on, there was always this guy that was like, and what do you think about it? Like to somebody that wasn't speaking. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so last question, aside from being involved in technology, what are some of your hobbies or things that you do that make you grow creatively? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a mom of two little boys, two and mm-hmm. five, almost three and five. So that, I don't know if you call that a hobby, but it definitely takes a lot of my time outside of work. <laughs> yes. um, I'm an aerial acrobat. What is that? Um, so I do um, think Cirque du Soleil and then think way less talented. But <laughs> but I um, I perform and um, train on fabric, which is a large piece of fabric coming down from the ceiling and rope and trapeze and, and stuff like that. So I do that multiple times a week. And that's really my creative outlet plus my exercise mm-hmm. plus social outlet. <laughs> it's great. For how long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for about eight years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really fun. It's, you know, I think everybody needs to have something just for them that's not work and that's not family and friends, just something that gives them that outlet. Um, it, yeah. At least it feels really healthy to me. Yes, it's something I keep hearing a lot about is pick something that while you're doing it, you're not thinking about meetings or work, like you're completely zoned in that activity. Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, it's practicing music yeah. instruments. Yeah, sure. And then my other, um, the other area that I'm really passionate about that I've been able to bridge into my work life here at Zillow as well is trying to address and help with homelessness and in the area in Seattle. It's a, it's a 
hot topic, but nationally as well. And so um, I'm on a couple of boards around that. And I am trying to do some product initiatives. I've been doing some product initiatives at Zillow as well to try to address that. And I really think that there's a strong opportunity for the tech community to help both in, in homelessness directly, but in kind of whatever social good feels most important to you. I feel like there's so much opportunity there. So really trying to drive and inspire some of that as well. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that somebody can do to help with homelessness? Yeah, I mean, the, homelessness isn't is a complex issue. <laughs> there's a lot of things everyone can do. You know, I think there there's a, a local friend of mine who runs um, Facing Homelessness, which is a Facebook group. And um, his initiative is Just Say Hello. And it's really about, you know, don't have that division between us and them and just um, let's all connect and let's all help each other in any way that we can. And I really like that's something that applies to everybody. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, to increase awareness. Yeah. That's the first step. Yeah. And then um, the community pillar program that I started here at Zillow is around getting landlords and property managers engaged in trying to rent to people with rental barriers, such as homelessness or low income or all the other barriers that makes it hard for people to obtain housing in these really competitive rental markets. Um, so for anyone that's a landlord or a property manager or knows one, you know, a great thing to do there is to sign up as a community pillar and help out in um, the that housing for people that need it. Mm -hmm. And then, wow, that's um, great. And then one other thing that we did here that I um, I put together a couple months ago is um, we did a volunteer fair called C Tech for Change. And um, that was really about getting people from the larger Seattle tech community to come. And we had about 25 local nonprofits here and um, that needed tech help. So finding skill-based volunteering opportunities because pretty much all the nonprofits could use tech help that they don't have budget for. And there's so many yes. people in the tech community that would like to help and use their skills to help. So that was really great. And I want to keep that momentum going as well. So um, I'm hoping to keep hosting those volunteer fairs here, at least annually. And um, I put together... What was the name of those? It's what? C Tech for Change. And there's a website. So it's S-E-A-T-E-C-H, the number four, change, dot -E, org. So there's a website that has information about the last event and people can sign up there to stay informed of future events as well. Wow, that's great. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Yes, it was great to talk to you too. Thanks for inviting me. Mm -hmm.